Good morning. We're focusing on a, the Ten Commitments. God sees you, God sympathizes with you, God deals gently with you, God loves you. God changes you, God chooses you. Good is ahead of you, good is guaranteed to you. God gives you the power to persevere, and God gives you the power to be content. The first four of these commitments come from Hebrews chapter 4, and we're going to look at the first part of that passage as we think about the first commitment, God sees you. And that's what it says, Hebrews 4 verse 12, for the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. And what those verses tell us is that God sees us. God sees you. The word of God is described as alive, living, and penetrating or piercing. In that sense, it's like a sharp, double-edged sword. But this sword splays or divides, dissects, and causes to be analyzed the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. The image is not that of a cursory visual inspection. Rather, something being split open and splayed to determine and identify what's underneath. The Word of God doesn't then, applied spiritually, the Word of God doesn't scrutinize our actions. It judges the thoughts and attitudes that lead to the actions. It doesn't merely assess our behaviors. It assesses our beliefs. It doesn't only assess our deeds. It assesses our desires. This is not good news, at least not initially. Here's what it says when the influence of the Word of God is summarized in terms of how does it make us feel? What does it do to us? Here's what it says. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And when it talks about the influence of the Word of God, and in this context, the Word of God at the time would have applied to the 39 books of the Old Testament. That's the Word of God that existed at that time in the first century. The New Testament of the Bible wasn't compiled and put together until three to four centuries later. It says a couple of things then about the influence of the Word of God. It says it causes us, causes everything, excuse me, to be uncovered and laid bare. Uncovered literally means naked, to, to be stripped. And laid bare is, it actually, actually it has two different images. One image is of a wrestler having another wrestler in a choke hold. And in the, having that wrestler in a chokehold is putting that wrestler in a very vulnerable position. The, the idea of being laid bare is, is to be made vulnerable. And another application is to that of a sacrificed animal. When the animal was about to be sacrificed, they would 
tilt its neck back so that the throat could be severed. That's the image then being created here um, of being made to be exposed and vulnerable. Once you imagine if you're lying on a table and you're naked, somebody is standing next to you and they have a sharp double-edged sword and they tell you, they tell you, now I'd like you to tilt your head back. I guarantee if you're on that table, you're not going to close your eyes and take a nap. You're going to be naked and afraid. You feel exposed and vulnerable. That's the impact of the word of God as it's expressed in Hebrews 4, 12 through 13, 12 through 14. And you might say, well, what does this have to do with um, God sees me? This doesn't feel like a really positive direction to head in. The interesting thing is the verse that leads into the description of the word of God as living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, is this. It says in Hebrews 4.11, let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. And then it goes into the word of God. So the question we could ask, how does being strip searched enable us or lead us to rest? In order to understand where rest comes from, we have to talk not only about the word of God, which we have, but now we have to talk about the son of God. In the book of Revelation, John has a vision of Jesus Christ as he existed on the far side of his death and resurrection. He was glorified. And in this vision, Jesus tells John to write letters to churches located in different cities. He tells him to write down seven of these letters. To the church in Laodicea, Jesus instructs John to Write these words. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either one or the other. So, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. I want you to imagine that you're about to take a drink of what you think is piping hot coffee, and then you sip it, and it's tepid, it's lukewarm. Or even worse, I want you to think about you're getting your mouth ready for a sip of cold milk or maybe cold Coke or something like that. And, and it's lukewarm and you might be tempted if you were expecting something different to spit it out. It's distasteful. That's the image that's being created here. What does Jesus find distasteful? And the text goes on to describe what is it that Jesus hears that causes him to have that, that reaction. He was, it's not what he would like to hear. Here's what it says. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. This is what Jesus hears, and this is what's distasteful. Their assessment, I am rich. I have become wealthy. I don't need a thing. 
That's their assessment of themselves, and his assessment is far different. He perceives and sees that they are wretched and pitiable, that they are poor, blind, and naked. They believe that being rich, having accumulated and having become wealthy, they don't need a thing that they're in a really good state, but they aren't. The the Bible talks about the illusion of security that is created by the accumulation of material resources. What it says in Proverbs 18, 10 and 11, it says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. The wealth of the rich is their fortified city. They imagine it an unscalable wall. And what it's describing then is individuals who assume that since they have no shortage of material resources that they're protected, nothing can get at them, and that they are secure, that they're safe. And what it indicates, that safety is an illusion. Material prosperity cannot bring the kind of safety that we would imagine it could. Where does safety come from? It says the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe, calling out on his name, not relying what we do or don't have, but relying on who we know and whose name we call out to. That makes us safe. In this case, though, the Laodiceans to whom John is writing this letter, they assume that their material resources is has put them in a place that they are safe and secure. Um, But Jesus sees their vulnerable, exposed state. And he understands that they are spiritually in a very needy place. And so, what will he do? As he approaches them, And what will he say? He sees them. That they are poor, blind, and naked. And so... When he connects with them, what is he going to do? Listen to what he says. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. What does he want? He sees their condition and what does he want? What it says, he wants them to have gold that will never lose its value. He wants them to have clothes so that they can cover their nakedness. He wants them to have salve so their eyes can heal. See, he sees their condition, and when he comes toward them, it's not to expose them. It's to heal them. It's not to harm them. It's to help them. That's why he knocks at their door. Because he loves them and he wants to provide what they need. Here's where the verse leads to. Jesus says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So, be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door... I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. We use this verse commonly to encourage people to become Christians. 
it really is written to Christians who have come to a place where their spiritual state is not what they imagine it to be. And what Jesus then offers is that he will come in to this person who claims to be a follower and to create a relationship that will allow them to be who God wants them to be. That's that's the image. God sees us and he comes to be with us. The image of knocking and coming in and dining in the first century That's the way you establish a relationship. And you were saying not just something. It's not just that you were meeting a physical need. That's not what eating, the significance of eating at the time. When you went to eat with a person, you were saying something to the neighbors of that person. You were saying, I am willing that anybody should know that I have a relationship with this person because I don't enter the house and eat with a person that I don't want to establish a relationship with. So what it's saying to us is that Jesus sees us and he sees our state And his reaction is not, I want to keep my distance. His reaction is knocking at the door and wanting to come in to meet the need, to correct the defects. That's his spirit. And people think that God cannot show up anywhere where there's spiritual imperfection, where there are spiritual defects. And that's just not the case. It's not what we find here. These people are pitiable, wretched, poor, blind, and naked. And Jesus is acting as the Son of God, doesn't stay away from these people. He wants, he knocks at their door. He wants to come in and establish a relationship with them. Why does Jesus come to us? You've heard this, he stands at the door of your heart and he knocks. What does he want with you? He sees already spiritual defects. He already understands it. And he knocks at your door. What does he want? We're convinced that he wants us to clean up. That he kind of waits there until we clean up our act. And then he comes in and admires all the good work we've done. That's not what it says here. It's not what we have. We imagine that it's correction, then connection. That he shows us what needs to be corrected. We do our best to correct. And then if we do a good enough job, then he might be willing to come in and and deal with a few things, but we'll have to do our part, you know. Um, That's not what we find here. It's not correction then connection. It's connection then correction. He sees the state. He comes in to develop a relationship. And as he comes in, he wants to provide those things that will enable us to become spiritually rich and not naked and bring us to the place where we can see God sees us God sees us however he didn't send his son to take things from us or to embarrass us he sees us but he sent his son to give things to us let me pray for us Father thank you for your promises uh, your perception you see things Nothing is hidden from your sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of you to whom we must give account. And it's good news that that perception doesn't lead you to want to distance from us, 
but to close the distance, to come to us, to knock at our door. You see our state. You want to exchange that which we rely on to be that which we really can rely on that makes us rich in an eternal sense. You want to cover our nakedness and cause us to see. I thank you for your good purposes and your good promises. I thank you that you see us. In Jesus' name, amen.